Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Quarter. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 118. How are you doing, guys? <laughs> Just kidding. How are you guys doing? Not bad. We're up to beta 5 now. Uh, as we are recording this, uh, beta 5 dropped today. Haven't had a chance to look at the release notes yet. I did test out one issue I had with beta 4 with the source editor in Xcode. And so far, it looks like that's fixed in, in this later, latest beta. Yeah, funny little thing for me. I, you know, I got my laptop back last week and I had to pretty much restore from Time Machine. And I figured, well, I want to go ahead and download Xcode 9. I have a feeling there's going to be a beta tomorrow, but if there's not, it'll still be all right. Yeah, beta. Another five gig download, but it's okay. There, there was a, one of the things that had been bothering me about the new control center is it, it took two taps to get into the audio switching interface. And they did add in control center, a little like pulsing audio thing on the, uh, uh, plane widget in control center that lets you just tap once to switch audio. So that's, that's nice. But the really interesting thing to me is the stuff that got removed in beta five. The one thing that got removed was iCloud messages. So that's been delayed, whatever that means. And I don't know if you guys remember iOS 7, uh, but we are supposed to have iCloud notification sync. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that feature is still delayed at this point. Um, but they took iCloud message sync out of beta 5. So that's kind of a bummer. They said uh, it'll be back later and say when. So maybe 11.1. I don't know. So all my messages are no longer being backed up to iCloud? Well, they're still being backed up to iCloud, but a new feature in iOS 11 was that on all your devices, you would see the same messages. Right. And so if you had a so, conversation going on your phone, currently you can't carry it on your, carry it over to your uh, MacBook or vice versa. Well, sometimes you can, but yeah, yeah, I still don't quite get how the, how it determines yeah, I feel like what, my what you get on what device, which is part of the reason why I think they were trying to introduce this new feature. Yeah, I think the iPad and the iPhone usually are fairly in sync, or at least obviously the watch is in sync with the phone. But yeah, it's kind of challenging sometimes. To, you know, sometimes I get the message on my phone, sometimes I get it on my desktop, sometimes I don't know where it goes. Yes, yeah, it's really not been too much of an issue for me, and I've kind of been enjoying it. Because I've been able to carry on conversations with people that aren't on Apple platforms from my desktop. And most of the time it works. There's there's times where it's kind of dicey. But for the most part, I can usually send a text message through my phone to somebody not on an Apple device. Well, yeah. So or I, I, I'm still not entirely sure why we needed the feature in the first place. It seems like they had all the stuff in place that you should have been getting everything the same on all your devices, but you weren't. Um, yeah, it seemed like it used to work. At least for me, it seemed like it was more reliable. And then a recent update, it seems like, or maybe a few updates ago, it, it's stopped working reliably. Yeah. But the other thing that was kind of more interesting to me in the firmware that, that removed is 
I don't know if you guys noticed, but if you had an app that used the background uh, location stuff, you would get a giant blue bar whenever that happened. Yeah, the bar it was shame. Like the, uh, yeah, they got so well. They didn't technically get rid of the blue bar shame, but you have to opt into it now if you're a developer. So no developer is ever going to do that. I mean, the so like I would see I deleted Swarm, which is what used to be Foursquare's app. And Facebook is always using your data in the background. But I don't know exactly why. Um, Maybe people at Facebook and other apps complained. But there's a new uh, on like a CL location manager. There's a new flag that you can set to true, it defaults to false, that basically says, show that bar in other apps when I'm used in the background. So, it, yeah, no one no one is ever going to turn that on. I can't imagine why you would. Um, but I, I, I kind of was happy that they were being shamed, but it was super annoying, and it made me delete some of my apps. So it's... <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. I guess, it's, I guess it's a good good change if you're the developer of one of those apps, but... Feel like we could have used something something more to shame these people a little bit more than they yeah. already were getting shamed. I think didn't they change the permissions so like even if you've already granted permission, it'll ask you if you want allow location always or only when you're in the app. I feel like the granularity of that has changed recently. There's, yeah, they, there's two different types, but I don't know if you ask for it if it'll then prompt you again later or not. Well, I think. I had heard that uh, in iOS 11, if you had the old permission, it would reprompt uh, it when you switched over to iOS 11. So you could choose whether or not you wanted to always have it or not, rather than just kind of being grandfathered into always on. But I haven't tested that out. So they, I, th- I think in iOS 10, they added the always in the background or whenever in the background uh, or the only when you're in the app. I think it was sporadic and once it was applied, it wasn't applied to every app. Yeah, but so so now how it works in iOS 11 is if you go into the location settings, it'll show you what it was selected for each app and you can switch it. So I went through and switched a bunch of my apps to only allow it when it's in the foreground. Uh, and that, that I think that screwed with a bunch of apps because they, they're not handling it very well. But... Uh, they're, it's good that they're giving us more control over what other apps can do uh, with a background. But yeah, I, I have mixed I have mixed feelings about just the fact that this thing was removed or that the behavior was changed so that no one's ever going to see it anymore. Maybe it was just uh, shame shame you during the beta and hope hope that would make you change your your ways of background location service stuff. But well, we have at least one more beta coming, so you don't know what will be in the final, but. Yeah, if they took it out in five, probably not a great chance of it coming back in six. Oh, yeah. And the fact that they like they basically it seems like they had a go no go on the uh, on the iMessage cloud sync. And I guess it was buggy enough or there was enough issue that they said, OK, we're not going to do this for iOS 11.0. We'll we'll see what we can do later. Doesn't bode well for any new stuff getting added. And they made a lot of minor changes and a lot of UI changes in this beta. So I feel like we're getting to the point where there's not going to be much else that changes significantly. There's just going to be hopefully bug fixes. We're getting to the point where this is where they start to send the firmware out for carrier certifications. 
So it's going to be locked down pretty soon. And we're less than a month away from September, so they could yeah. they could always ship it on you know September one, and maybe iOS eleven point one comes out with the with the new iPhones or something later on. Who knows? But yeah, it's it's getting pretty close to go time. So if you're working on some iOS eleven stuff, I hope that's close to ready at this point. Unfortunately yeah, for us, most of our apps have haven't experienced any issues on 11 uh, so everything for the most part is just you know working without an issue but i definitely have encountered third-party apps that can't say the same yeah but i feel like a lot of it's getting ironed out right now yeah yeah and hopefully most of those are are bugs on the sdk side and that will get fixed rather than uh anything on the developer side but We'll see. I, I'm sure everybody's out there testing their apps and getting ready with updates anyway. But there's always a few surprises. This is usually my least favorite time of the year because there will be, historically, there's always things that if you don't update, they break in the new version. But updating breaks different things on older versions and it's just kind of a weird, weird state for a few weeks or a couple months while they get the final built out but since they started doing the public betas it hasn't been as much of an issue in my experience yeah well there's still going to be a fair number of apps that will stop working on users phones because they're still stuck in 32-bit land that is true yeah most of those pretty much abandoned aware at this point so it's kind of a bummer like a lot of those original games you know that kind of made the app store popular with ios or I guess iPhone OS 2.0 at the time, uh, those companies have been like bought by other companies and the apps are just going away. Like I think flight control got bought by EA. Uh, I was hearing on another podcast and EA made like this crappy free to play version of flight control. So there's no way they're going to update the original flight control. That game is just gone. Now there's lots of other there's... classics like that. I imagine that are, that are going to be gone. Yeah. And I mean, even, you know, some apps that were featured in keynotes that, uh, you know, were kind of the end-all, be-all, you know, games and such. You know, those get abandoned for one reason or another. Yeah, I mean, these companies, you know, the App Store Gold Rush kind of ended and a lot of them ceased to exist or went back to doing what they were doing or got acquired by someone else. And Yeah, I think yeah, Panic just... even. Panic, didn't they recently say, like, you know, they... They like iOS, but it's not really profitable for them, so they're focusing on the Mac apps. Yeah, they're in that market tier where they need to have they need to have high prices to support their their work. And the App Store, the phone App Store, is just not conducive to that. Oh, and their apps are a little bit unique. They're pro. They're pro. They're pro, apps. but they're so so with Panic, the apps are kind of more desktop centric, you know, you've got the prompt was their terminal app, which was really cool. Very well done. Best one out there probably, but you know, in outside of like system admin work, it wasn't necessarily a common use case. So in very small niche, relatively speaking, um, transmit is an FTP client. Again, probably some useful things, probably even more useful now that you have a file manager on iOS, but it's still not necessarily something you would do 
most people would do on their iOS device. Although I don't uh, think those Coda, apps are those aren't going away, are they? Not I don't not that I know of. I I don't know what their plan is with those apps, but they have discontinued Status Board at this point because they just weren't making any money off that. Yeah. So it's, it seems like they'll just keep those in maintenance mode until they have some other, you know, incentive to get them updated. Maybe this iPad Pro stuff will catch on. I, I noticed in the Apple earnings call that it was the first time in a long time where year over year the iPad sales were actually up. Yeah, I think a lot of that was contributed to the lower priced iPad, not necessarily the Pro, but I'm sure the Pro had had some impact on that. So, um, you know, we were talking about beta testing earlier, and one of the things that uh, Apple changed recently with TestFlight is they, at WWDC, they bumped up the limit to 2,000 users, and now um, now they've bumped it all the way up to 10,000. So you can have 10,000 beta testers, which is a pretty significant number. Uh, I think a lot of uh, indie app developers would be happy to have 10,000 users, let alone 10,000 beta users. But anybody who's building an app for scale, being able to test with large number of users is is invaluable. Yeah, it actually makes the the beta something that's actually useful at this point. Because, yeah, before, especially when it was like you had like that 100 device limit and that was all you got. It was like, don't even bother with a beta. <laughs> but, yeah, 10,000 is like an actual usable beta mount. So... I'm excited about this. Maybe we'll have to do some test flight betas coming up. Yeah, I think, you know, test flight, I, I miss the fact that we don't have Android support anymore, but it, you know, I think Apple's test flight has become a lot more viable, especially, you know, shorter review cycles and um, a little more flexibility. The only thing I don't like, and as far as I know, they haven't changed yet, is adding internal testers. You invite them to iTunes Connect. Uh, which for a business user is probably not the most intuitive invite because it doesn't say test flight or anything about the app. It just invites the user to the iTunes Connect team. And then you well, add then, it to the test yeah, flight. Yeah, then you have to do another invite in order to get them um, to to invite them to a specific app you're testing. I just did that the other day um, yeah. with an internal app that, uh, I actually saw this the other day. I don't know what you guys do with your apps these days, but um, we have like some internal like utility apps that we use, like for environment management and some testing stuff for our apps. And I just created a a, a new uh, bundle ID in iTunes Connect, and I'm just doing internal testing with it to kind of distribute it and get it out to people rather than having to build it on there on their phone or on all the test devices they have. And it's been working pretty well. I just don't ever submit it uh, for review. I've seen other people do that with like their dev build, like to use for a QA or something like that. Have you guys done anything like that with Apple's test flight? Or do you tend to stick to some of these third party services or the external test flight testing to do that type of thing? I'm still using Fabric for those types of builds. Uh, we, um, I, I think if it wasn't for the cumbersome nature of inviting people in uh, for internal testing on iTunes Connect, I'd probably switch over. But yeah, we're, we're still using Fabric in many cases for that. Yeah. Well, and I'm not sure if... I'm just thinking like internal tools that like only your developers or testers will use. And like for a 
if you have a QA team, this could easily be like one of those things where you have like the QA tester at your domain.com and that's a one-time invite thing. And then just all your test devices have that same Apple ID logged in for, for test light. <laughs> yeah, I've done that. Before. Well, I mean, if you've got a bunch of test devices, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have different logins anyway for iTunes Connect or, or test flight. So, you know, that ends up working really well and you could even get fancy with it and use the, uh, you know, set up a provisioning profile and the iPhone configurator and, you know, push certs down and set up the accounts that way. But yeah, that that can work really well. I think we'll eventually switch over to that. We were talking internally about whether or not we continue to use the third-party solutions for distribution. Because, you know, one of the nicest things about TestFlight is you don't have to worry about provisioning profiles anymore. And device identifiers, that stuff is just a giant pain. Like the, the one-time pain of, like, doing the iTunes Connect invite and stuff is, I feel like, worth it to me rather than, okay, you need to get me your device identifier by installing this profile and granting it this permission and all this stuff. Yeah, Yeah, it's way better, I think, I feel like. Yeah, and with the automatic uh, provision management and uh, in Xcode 9, there's some command line tools to help manage the provisioning profiles on UCI servers, so... Yeah, there's a. It's getting smoother and smoother uh, for those continuous integration, continuous delivery s- scenarios. So you know, I could see pushing builds out to test flight in an automated process on a nightly basis if there's changes, or maybe even more often. Cool. So I, I've I've got a question for you guys about ARKit. It seems like it's one of the headlining features of iOS 11, and it's getting lots of press coverage and all this stuff. Um. What are your general thoughts on on ARKit? I read this this uh, Medium post that did kind of a deep dive, and you guys made fun of me for how long this article was about why ARKit is better than the alternatives. But I'm just kind of curious, what what's your guys' opinion right now of, of ARKit? Honestly, I have no firsthand experience with writing code for ARKit, so I could comment on AR in general, but that's about it. We've played around with ARKit in the office, some, you know, toy apps, demo apps, hello world kind of things. Uh, we've also done some work with Unity and, and VR. Um, I'm still kind of like on the fence of how much of it is gimmick in its current state versus practical, you know, games like uh, Pokemon Go. You know, that's a pretty obvious scenario. There's probably some pretty obvious business scenarios. Uh, we get... We've been getting emails and phone calls from people who want VR, AR solutions more and more often, more than I would have thought we would. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if there's any real return on that investment yet. I think there will be. Yeah, there's there's some interesting ideas I've seen out there. I mean, you see like the general just like, hey, this is a cool gimmick demo, like the, uh, the, the portals world. where you can go into the different worlds and the... And the ruler and stuff. I saw this one that was kind of interesting. That was like this. Uh, it's from some uh, shipping company, and it gives you a virtual to scale box, and you can see if what size box you need to put whatever thing you have. And I thought that was kind of clever as a as an yeah, actual yeah. useful thing. We were actually um, looking at something very similar for for a client, and yeah, it's if it's close enough, it could you know make a big difference. 
Yeah. So, so the big mm-hmm. thing, the big thing with with Apple's AR kit is that it's it kind of gives you like the six degrees of freedom. You get like your position X Y Z, and then you also get like which way you're looking. And there's really no other um, shipping mass market thing that does this. And I think that's why it's getting a lot of press because there's all these demos and it's actually working on, you know, people's devices that they have shipped. The the kind of interesting thing is that two of the biggest competitors by uh, Microsoft and Google. So the HoloLens for Microsoft and Tango is kind of Google's baby are better. They're better than ARKit and they're more advanced. Um, but for various reasons, they've had problems shipping. Uh, so Apple is kind of getting all the uh, the glory for some of this, you know, mass consumer AR stuff, which I think is is really interesting. <laughs> I think this isn't like an unusual situation for Apple. Is like you got Google and company who aren't very good at the marketing side and convincing people why they need the technology. Apple is really good at that for one reason or another. So it kind of like you know raises the water for all the chips. You know, every everybody seems to benefit from Apple's marketing. People don't realize they need an iPad or they don't realize they need a thousand songs in their pocket until Apple tells them. And then everybody seems to do better after that. Well, well, tell me what you think of this. Uh, I, I think a lot of that is true. Um, but so Microsoft has their HoloLens and they can't really ship it to consumers because A, their HoloLens is like a $3,000 developer kit. So that's kind of yeah. dead dead in the water. Um, and then they could have you know, spent more money to put in into a Windows phone at some point because uh, they've had it, the technology around for a while. But, uh, you know, it, I think it was pretty much too little too late. Uh, the ship has kind of sailed on Windows phone. But um, Google's Tango is a really interesting one. Tango has been a thing for like four or five years now, I think. And at least. Yeah. yeah. But it's a separate device again, right? Well, so, yeah. So the thing is, Tango is a. A specification. So Google said we have software for uh, devices that meet this specification. And the kind of the two main things are you have a, a camera that it samples, you know, how often the display refreshes, so like 30 or 60 frames per second. And then you have your IMU, like your uh, gyroscope, and that samples at like a thousand times a second. And so you combine the visual data and the and the motion data to get this AR stuff and this is where Android's fragmentation actually has really killed it. So it, it apparently takes a lot of testing and uh, validation and machine learning work to get a specific uh, like IMU, like the gyroscope, to work well enough that it can tell where you are in 3D space, essentially. Um, so if Google were to put out a a specification basically all of the android people would have to you know settle on a couple um cameras and gyroscopes to to actually get that all calibrated and make it useful and shippable and everything um but because it's so fragmented they can't do that but apple has you know like four or five different components that they use and so they can take the the time and effort in calibrating all that stuff and then boom you know, they're out of the gate first and they don't even have like a stereo camera for most of their devices. That's that's, you know, getting the depth data. They're just doing it with 
what they have, but they can calibrate it good enough so that they're they're basically ahead of everyone, which I just thought it was really interesting and kind of a bummer if you're working on the Tango team at Google. Yeah. But, you know, is this where, like, the partnership with uh, HTC Vive to build a standalone Daydream? I realize that's VR, not AR, but, you know, in, in, you know with the Daydream anyway, they're essentially outsourcing that. Well, yeah, so the... The VR stuff, they don't actually need as much of the data as you do with AR. Like, they don't have the positional uh, data with with Daydream uh, in the same way that you, you need it for AR kit because you're overlaying virtual objects on the, the physical world. When you're in a virtual world, you don't need as much precision because it's all about relative to kind of where you started. But right. you, yeah, so... But the funny thing is, like, ARKit only supports, like, horizontal planes, and Tango and HoloLens basically can map out an entire space that you're in, like, they'll know you have a desk here, and you have a wall here, and a ceiling there, and all that stuff. And ARKit can't do any of that on at least any of the released phones. Um, and but, then, I mean, supposedly there's there's things in the API, or at least hints at tracking vertical planes as well. Uh, so, you know, we can probably expect to see an update not too far down the road for AR right. Kit. Well, and that that may be just some of the phones that have the the dual cameras for depth sensing that lets them get the vertical planes. Um, I don't I didn't get the impression that was turned on at, at this point. Well, yeah, like it's, it not, was it's not turned on common. right now, but I yeah, I think that's I don't think that's something that necessarily everything will get, but HoloLens and and uh, Tango are even better in that they like have can get like three D representations of of other objects in your room. So like you can have a table right. and you can have an, something go under it, or you can have yeah, you can have like a dog, a virtual dog, fetch a ball yeah. that rolls under the table. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. It's or the like demos think are, of it are pretty cool. Think of it like you want AR directions, and you're going down a street, and you you know the arrow says go straight, and then turn right at the street. But as you go between a building, it's cut off by the building. Like stuff like that's possible uh, with, you know, some of these other people, but not with kind of simple AR kit. So AR kit is kind of the best alternative that's that's actually viable to ship stuff in. But it's like the one of the kind of crappiest ones. But it's getting all the press because you can actually ship it, I guess. Just yeah, kind of weird. So. So you're telling me that we're going to have to wait for the mixed reality first-person shooters where you're fighting zombies in your own house? Oh, you'll be able to play those. On maybe, iPhone. Yeah, but, but the zombies wouldn't be able to iPhone. navigate the, the furniture. Yeah, they're, they're just going to be popping out of random portals in the wall and <laughs> don't have any boundaries. But it was, one of the things the article talks about is uh, you kind of have to think a whole different level about when you're when you're doing that where it can actually map your environment versus just having like a plane like apple's demo was like you have this mini scene playing out on a table and that's kind of easy as a developer to get your mind around but when you're like okay i'm in a room and there's a chair over here there's a desk over here there's a you know a lamp over here how you have to design your app becomes like exponentially more complicated when you throw that stuff in there. So a lot of the early AR kit stuff is just going to be super gimmicky unless they, you know, have some more of this, uh, some of, some of this advanced 
uh, tracking of your space, which maybe we'll get in the iPhone Pro 8, whatever the heck it's called. Uh, who knows? So yeah, no I, Toy Story for AR, at least not yet. Yeah, I do think it would be cool to... Like, I'm not a huge first-person shooter player, but you know, to be able to hide behind your furniture and you know have a multiplayer mixed reality game, I, I think that would be really cool. One thing that I thought was really cool I saw recently was... Uh, have you have you heard of the game Splatoon, Alex? Yeah, yeah. The second version just came out, but yeah. I haven't looked at that one yet. But, but, but the concept of that is basically instead of trying to kill people, you're trying to cover your territory in paint. Right, I think right. it would be it's really a... cool if you could actually like map the world that you're in and like actually spray paint over stuff like in the in a virtual version of the physical world. So kind of like a location based Splatoon. Uh, it seems like that would be a really, really sweet like AR okay. game that would be way more engrossing and complicated than something like Pokemon Go. No offense, Sam. <laughs> oh, the, <laughs> nobody uses the AR camera in Pokemon Go. Oh, I know, yeah. yeah. It's a giant gimmick in Pokemon Go. And it kills but, the battery. <laughs> well, well, the whole game. Pokemon, yeah. Yeah, the GPS and all and that Unity. doesn't help. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. I th- you know, Splatoon could be really cool and it's a non-violent uh, arena game oh yeah it's great for kids just just for that fact like it's my first first person shooter <laughs> yeah essentially and i don't think you have like chat on there or at least not just open chat oh nintendo's the- pretty strict about that kind of stuff yeah it well, took us a long time to even figure out how to set up multiplayer on the wii u because of their id management so the swift or Swift, sorry, the Switch uh, chat that they added is is pretty horrible. You have to have a separate iPhone app, um, and you can uh-huh. do chat through the iPhone app, but you don't get game audio to your iPhone, and there's no Bluetooth on the Switch. So, like, Nintendo is selling these converters that basically you plug a headphone port into this this mixer, and then you plug your phone's headphone jack, and if it's an iPhone, you have the lightning to headphone port adapter, into this thing, and then it spits out one headphone port that you actually wear if you actually want to get the experience of playing a game and chatting at the same time. So I've got a feeling maybe they made it that bad on purpose so that they wouldn't have a bunch of little kids trying to to chat and do whatever people do on like the Xbox and the PlayStation with their yeah. horrible voice chat stuff. <laughs> one good thing about the Switch is you won't find a 12-year-old talking trash about your mom. Because you won't be finding anybody talking trash, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it's kind of some weird decisions they made, but the end result, I guess, is good for kids, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't. There's a lot of games I don't let my kids play. Less about the game and more about the open chat. So, speaking of inappropriate things, you guys want to <laughs> talk about uh, talk about this Google memo? I guess I shouldn't be laughing about it, but... <laughs> Yeah, it seems like there's definitely a culture clash going on at Google. And that's I'm sure it's true at any large company. There's, you know, we happen to be in an industry that tends to be a little bit more progressive in general. So it's mm, a little bit. I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I guess in the circles that I run, it tends to be a little bit more progressive. But, you know, so like the conservative um, kind of anti PC group tends to be a little bit. And the minority, from what I've seen. Yeah, so it's still I, fairly well dominated by 
people of one color and one gender. Yes. Yeah, I don't. I, I think for the most part, it's not like intentional inclusion. It's just this systematic bias that kind of exists in tech, and especially like out in Silicon Valley, like the uh, there's definitely a very specific culture, even though you know they may seem pro- progressive on a lot of fronts. Uh, How do you? I, well, yeah, I think progressive on certain policies, I suppose. But yes, you're right. The, there is a huge lack of diversity. And, and that happens, you know, just when you there's something with tech that's that's made it happen, I guess. I, I can't explain why it's happened and I don't think it's good. Um, and you definitely have people who are who want it to stay the way it is, like this guy. I assume it's a guy at Google who wrote this this anti diverse diversity memo. But it's it's kind of crazy to me that someone would write that memo in the background of like Google is being sued for discriminating against women uh, by giving them systematically lower salaries. And the company is trying to fight that. And even if it weren't, even if you had different beliefs that were, you know, that didn't line up with with uh, what's what's best for your company legally or morally, legally, I feel like you would still try to go along. It's, it just baffles, baffles my mind. It boggles my mind. I don't understand it. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit weird. And, you know, Google, as part of that lawsuit, I think they were asked for to calculate like salaries based on gender. And they came back and said it was too difficult. So, you know, I, I don't know whatever came out of that. But I mean, I can imagine, you know, a company like Google publishing salaries for everybody in, in a public court document would cause quite a bit of, of challenges um, given their size. And I'm sure a fairly broad range of salaries, regardless of gender. Yeah. But, but- yeah, it, 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 it was kind of weird for a company who prides themselves on data mining to say it was difficult, too difficult for them to, to figure out salaries. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, regardless of how you may feel with like maybe the people in your circles or whatever, our our industry as a whole does a really bad job at diversity. And it'd be really nice if we could get better somehow. I think that starts, you know, at a pretty young age. And I, I think, you know, the best place to start to change that is, you know, in the schools and, you know, teaching everybody the code. There tends to be like this age where these gender roles start getting enforced. And, you know, I've taken my kids to like Minecraft development camp, summer camps and things like that. And those tend to be fairly evenly split. But then there's this age where, where the, the split gender wise switches and, you know, one of my teammates, his daughter didn't want to participate in a hack day and she ended, it, it was kind of stressful for her, but in the end she ended up winning the hack day with her team. Uh, so it was kind of a happy ending, but uh, and she's at that age where it, it's a little bit more challenging socially for whatever reason. I don't know how much of that is educators or peer pressure and, you know, what, uh, you know, what, advertisers say you should be interested in but yeah yeah i think there's it's got to start young and maintained yeah and it's i mean it's it's something that's definitely tech is uniquely bad at it compared to other industries like i saw this chart of like college majors starting in like the 20s and like you know when when after suffrage when women started going to college and there's like uh the chart for like lawyers and 
doctors and computer science. And there is kind of like this steady uphill climb for women until it got to 50%, around 50% for all of those industries, except for computer science. It like, and around the 50s, it started going down again. So there's something that's kind of inherent in our industry that is causing it. So if when you're dealing with people of other races and genders, try to be inclusive, uh, you know, in your work and do what you can. I, I mean, I like Alex said, I think it'll definitely be helpful to, you know, do more yeah. work to be inclusive. Yeah, volunteer. Yeah, there's yeah. there's more than just that, I think, that can help. We need to get out of kind of the way things have always been done and we can do a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of subtle things that you can do that, you know, most people probably don't even realize, like the way you um, write a job description can be slanted in a certain way that you don't even realize. Uh, you know, it's that like, you know, there's a statistic. I don't know what the, the specifics are, but the number men on average are more willing to apply for a job that are not qualified for. You know, if they just meet some of the requirements where women on average um, will only apply for jobs they feel they're completely qualified for. So, you know, I, so the way you write your job description, if you make it sound like, you know, anytime you ask for like a ninja or a rock star, suggests a um, programmer culture. Or or 10 years of swift development required. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, expert <laughs> Even in something like that. Yeah. So, you know, gender wise, men seem to be more willing to to fake it on the skill set, according to studies. So, um, yeah, I, you know, this, this Google memo made quite the rounds in um, both kind of the tech industry, but also the mainstream news as well. So I, I'm sure we'll hear more about that. And it's definitely an area of growth. Uh, and you know our industry is still a fairly young industry, so we we still have a lot to learn. For sure. Well, on that note, I think that's about all the time we have left this week. So why don't you guys tell me where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter, and I'm at Sam Quarter. I'm at Alex Argo, and you can pi- yeah. I'm at Alex Argo, and you can find the podcast at Shared Inst. Uh, come join us in our Slack by going to chat.sharedinstance.com to get an invite, and we'll talk to you guys soon.